Welcome to the Visegrad Insight podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. My name is Timothy Garten-Nash. I'm a historian and author at Oxford University. Um, my new book, Homelands, A Personal History of Europe, is appearing next week. And um, I'm a great admirer of the work of Visegrad Insight and looking forward very much to this conversation. February 22nd. 2023. I'm Miles Maftian, Editorial Director here at Visegrad Insight. Well, I think it's safe to say it's been a pretty eventful week in Central and Eastern Europe. A day after U.S. President Joe Biden's secret visit to Kiev, he traveled here to Warsaw and he delivered a very riveting speech to the crowd. It was essentially centered on how Putin will never win in Ukraine, and he boasted how the West has essentially responded to the Russian aggression in a critical way. Now, this speech just came hours after Russian President Vladimir Putin gave his own address in Moscow, where he was claiming that the war in Ukraine was this existential struggle against the West, which he obviously believes started the war itself. Now, from the view of Warsaw, we see that Biden's trip and his speech is an eventful one. I mean, this is the second major address in less than a year from even the same Polish castle itself. And now there's certainly two ways to sort of look at Biden's trip here. The one would be to understand the symbolic gesture and nature of the trip. So it's the rallying cry for Europe, the understanding that the center of gravity is shifting more towards NATO's eastern flank, the reiteration that we are in the battle between democracy and autocracy, and so forth. And the symbolics of this is incredibly important. Obviously, from an international relations perspective, this is one of the major things that a sitting president can essentially do. But another is to sort of ask, what exactly does this trip accomplish from any sort of decision-making or institutional standpoint for either Poland or CEE members? So, of course, we know that Ukraine is getting the funding from the U.S. and from other European officials and nations, and this is very clear. But when it comes to what this trip did for CEE, I would have to say, you know, not much. We look and we understand that in meetings with the Polish president, Andrzej Duda, Biden did reiterate his commitment to the region's security. Biden, of course, thanked Duda and said that the relationship between the two nations is critical. But I have to say that there's no substantive step taken here. There wasn't a promise of more troops in Poland or in Central Eastern Europe. There was no promise of a base on the eastern flank. And of course, we all understand that these decisions aren't taken lightly, but there wasn't even a half wink at any attempt to do this. And that is sort of the harsh reality. There's always going to be this promise to stand and to defend NATO territory, but I would say that this hardly does anything to lessen the nerves of NATO's eastern flank members, as European officials even now understand that Putin's aims have, have not changed since he launched his invasion a year ago. And Biden can talk about how much the Russian economy has been devastated, but undeniably Putin will not have any sort of change of heart here. Of course, he's had his humiliating setbacks, but even now we sort of see that Russia has recently made gains in the east and the troops are poised to almost take the city of Bakhmut, um, which would essentially signal the first significant Russian military victory in months. So it's still, one year later, Ukraine does stand, and we do want to reiterate this theme. 
And in order to do so, despite the fact that there are many different stories that are happening right now in the region, we want to go to our future of Ukraine fellows. We want to give them the voice and we want to allow them the, the space to, to give their short remarks about what the current state is in Ukraine after one year of the Russian invasion. It seems to me that the solidarity of Europeans with Ukraine will become that important factor that would help in determine of European future. And the Europeans themselves should see Ukraine as an independent and important organism and a nature part of the European civilization. Let's be honest. Before the invasion, Ukraine craved to be in the EU and NATO as well. We did our homework, we conducted our reforms to implement the association agreement faster. Unfortunately, Putin didn't fancy this idea of having Ukraine out of his post-Soviet space. The invasion only made us Ukrainians stronger and closer to the EU than ever. We will never get back to the status quo, and it's good. We see the EU not only as our ally or friend. Ukrainians want to be a part of the EU family. We are family. As Zelensky put it, a free Europe cannot be imagined without free Ukraine. Now it's very hard to tell what our future will look like as we need to win. Without our victory, there is no bright future as Putin will go further. We Ukrainians want to defeat the aggressor and join the EU in the borders of 1991 with our lawful, internationally recognized lands and with our people. In the EU, we will reconstruct our country, our cities, which are being destroyed right now. Russia destroys not only infrastructure, but also our identity, culture, mentality. In the occupied cities, they impose their own culture, propaganda and torture or kill those Ukrainians who do not accept the Russian world. That's why mental reconstruction is also vital. And Olena Zelenska, the first lady of Ukraine, has already pushed this process in tight cooperation with the West. I guess our future in the EU and without Russia will be the brightest page of our history. It will be a period of great reconstruction and revival, not only the physical one, but the spiritual one. Since the start of the full-fledged Russian invasion into Ukraine, the perception of Europe among Ukrainians definitely changed, and to be honest, changed for the better. Because all those skeptics and all that that were d doubting the whole pro-European movement and European integration are now mostly uh, either silent or either convinced that Europe is the only path that Ukraine should undertake. And basically, the question that we are asking ourselves nowadays is not whether we should do it, but when we can do it. And most of the Ukrainians, something about 60% of the population, are convinced that by the end of 2023, we should start the negotiations of entering the Euro European Union. And if we speak about the ideological part of the issue, before that, uh, there was a common understanding between uh, the elites, uh, analytical society, intellectuals, that Ukraine is the eastward forepost of Europe, that we are, to some extent, the last bastion of European values in this part of the world. But nowadays we see that we are not only the bastion that is protecting Europe from the hordes of the east, we are definitely the central tower of European values. Because to my experience and my understanding, and I do believe that many of my colleagues and compatriots, compatriots will agree with me, 
nowadays Ukraine is the country most embodied with European values and principles. Ukraine is Europe in itself, because Ukraine is, as of now, the only European state that is willing to sacrifice so much for what Europe is all about, for freedom, dignity, for respect for human rights and uh, human freedoms, for free markets, democratic societies, open societies. And that is why, basically, Ukraine is what Europe is all about, what Europe is historically, culturally, and uh, from the value point of view is all about. And that is why, yeah, I do understand that uh, the appreciation, evaluation of Europe has definitely changed in Ukraine and changed for the better. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our podcast. And today we are very fortunate to have an eminent speaker with us, Timothy, Professor Timothy Gordonash. And given the full one year anniversary of a full scale Russian invasion, we would like to discuss some major developments happening. So what would be the first takeaway after the year of this complete change in the European dynamics in face of the war? I think it's now clear that this is an event in European and world history as big as 1989, and that it actually ends what I call, um, in my new book, Homelands, A Personal History of Europe, the post-wall period. So the period that starts with the fall of the Berlin Wall on the 9th of November, 1989, ends, in my view, on the 24th of February, 2022. So that's point one. Then there's a question, what has begun? And that, of course, is less clear. But uh, I would say, firstly, that it's clear that Ukraine has now been recognized across the world as a major independent European state, which has never really been the case before. Secondly, that most Europeans have realized that our security still depends on the United States, nearly 80 years after the end of the Second World War. Maybe it shouldn't be true, but it is true. So much for Emmanuel Macron's strategic autonomy. And um, thirdly, that we have a chance, if Ukraine wins this war, and we can talk about what victory means, of moving towards a genuinely post-imperial Europe for the first time. That is to say, a Europe that has empires neither overseas, as we had for six centuries, nor on the continent of Europe. And so in this terrible crisis, there is also a great opportunity. Yeah, well, you're mentioning the end of strategic autonomy uh, by, as defined by Emmanuel Macron. And I think nobody could be arguing with, with that. However, at the same time, the call for European involvement in supporting Ukraine has never been greater. European Union is the second after the US in terms of financial support overall uh, to defense of, of Ukraine, to military effort of Ukraine, but is only making first steps and important steps uh, in supporting Ukraine militarily. The 5 billion euro from the perversely called European Peace Facility Plan is a demonstration that the concept devised 10 years ago in the Common Security Defense Policy bears some fruit, not all of the fruits prescribed by Macron. So I would say probably uh, 
Europeans are at the same time rethinking the concept it's uh, on on its on its terms and how it was defined because it's not going away and sticking with Europe. We had Xi Jinping, we have Putin speaking of European autonomy in a way trolling us uh saying that we should be autonomous from US but that's the old definition i think that we're striving for a new definition of of how europe can deliver in in the world order so what i believe in is european power i uh, what the france french used to call l'europe puissance i believe we need to have power and be ready to use it to defend our own interests and values in an increasingly post-Western world where there are very challenging, if not threatening, non-Western great powers and one superpower, China, and um, the politics of the United States are not exactly encouraging. Um, Of course, the second supporter of Ukraine, and one of the fastest, was a European country called Britain outside the EU. So it was the US, Britain, and then countries in the European Union. So that the Europe of defence is always going to be something more than than the EU. But I absolutely agree with you that it's it's very encouraging that that the EU actually with Ursula von der Leyen has played a leading role in support for Ukraine and in taking the security seriously. And longer term, if Ukraine wins and controls most if not all of its sovereign territory, you will have the largest and most combat-experienced army in Europe, in Ukraine, potentially the second-largest army in Poland, if the goal of 300,000 is achieved, and the best-equipped army in Germany, if the so-called Seitenwende happens, so that Europe's defence capacity, its actual capability, will be very significantly increased, however exactly it's organised. But there is a certain dynamic underlying both propositions. In both instances, if we talk about European autonomy or Europe as a power, it necessitates some sort of cohesion, coherence and a unitary outlook. Whereas we clearly see that the definition of victory from Warsaw's perspective or from Paris' perspective are divergent. Recent comment by Macron saying that in, that in the conflict, the two sides should not be clear winners comes as at the direct opposite of Warsaw, of what Warsaw wants. So how do we relate to this? You, you have been at the Munich Security Forum probably witnessing these comments from Macron. Absolutely. I was, I was there for it. I also saw Olaf Scholz praising his own cautious approach, uh, saying, Sorgfalt vor Schnellschuss, in other words, loosely translated, care before over-hasty action, of course, in this case, the opposite is the truth. Um, the resulting slowness has actually played for Putin, not for Ukraine. So yes, there are still significant differences. But I would say that, and actually some polling that we've just released, my Oxford Research Project Europe in a Changing World, working with ECFR, shows that actually Europeans have come closer to the United States over the last year. Uh, A lot of wobbles still in Italian public opinion, uncertainty, depending how you ask the question, in German public opinion, but actually remarkably German and Polish public opinion, for example, have come closer. So I think there's been a a firming up of of, of the Western stance. Um, 
Um, that doesn't mean, of course, that we're doing enough, fast enough, actually, to enable Ukraine to recapture most of its territory. But I think, I, I think opinion has moved significantly. You said that Europeans moved closer to Americans, but did we move closer as Europeans on American terms? What about the European subjectivity on this issue? Well, for me, the most important question for Europe is, does a country which has been brutally and cynically and criminally invaded recover its freedom and its sovereignty? That's a question for Europe. And whether we have a specifically European identity on this point or a Euro-Atlantic identity uh, seems to me a secondary question. Actually, one other effect of this war is that the EU and NATO are closer together than ever before. Like the two strong arms of the West, and you have Sweden and Finland wanting to join NATO, and countries who are in the EU thinking about, you know, I mean, in other words, it goes both ways. And it's very interesting, the other day, I just spent a week in Kiev, I was talking to the um, uh, Olga Stefanishina, who is the Minister for Euro-Atlantic Integration. So you have this term, which actually Václav Havel and Bronislav Giremek actually, in a sense, coined and popularized after 1989, which is now the basic orientation for Ukraine. And for Ukrainians, it's as important to get into NATO as it is to get into the EU. That secures their freedom. Well, that's a very central European perspective. Uh, looking back at 1989, no one has fought in Central Eastern Europe about joining EU. At first, it was all about NATO security guarantees. And the EU came as a soft add-on icing on the cake, in a way. But, you know, let me correct you slightly there, Vajek. In 1988-1989, and of course I was very close to those events, the slogan was the return to Europe. And actually there was a, a brief period of a few months where a lot of people were thinking about pan-European security system, mm. you know, Yuzhi Dinspier in, in Czechoslovakia, for example. Very rapidly people came back to, to, to NATO, but, 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 but the sort of the organizing sort of ideological, cultural, historical term I think was Europe, um, and and I found the same thing in 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 Ukraine, um, you know, over this last week. It was very interesting. I mean, in fact, in many ways, it felt like 1989, in this absolute passion and determination to, in their case, not so much to return to Europe as to go to Europe, in some sense, some would say for the first time. And I couldn't agree more. I think this is a question of identity. I would even go as far as saying that I am Polish because I'm European and Ukrainians believe that you are they are Ukrainian because they are European. You need to understand yourself within the framework of European uh, nation, family of nations or community of nations in order to be uh, strongly founded on against or isolated against these tendencies of imperial power like Russia represents. But the security came only with NATO. Europe was never really delivering on, on what we were afraid uh, of the past, of the Byzantine Empire. Uh, absolutely. That's absolutely true and I think remains true in military terms for the foreseeable future. Um, but I would just say that if you take the two together, and after all, the EU notionally has in Article 42 a mutual security guarantee, um, I think it's a package. I think what, what 
what the history of the last 30 years is telling us is you only really feel that you have a secure European future in freedom and democracy um, if you're on both. Securing the future of democracy and freedom obviously necessitates a clear victory from the Ukrainian perspective, which I guess brings us to a focal point upon this one-year anniversary of full-scale Russian invasion, which is about an endgame. How do we define Ukrainian victory? Conversely, how do we define Russian defeating this conflict? Do we plan to re-establish borders from 2014? Clearly, we, we cannot foresee a NATO victory parade in Moscow unless we don't want to risk World War III. So what kind of scenarios are we talking here about? So interestingly, the, almost the entire Munich Security Conference was about this one question. And I, there was a Ukrainian lunch where the editor of The Economist tried very hard to get three prime ministers and one president-elect, uh, Pavel of, of, of the Czech Republic, to answer this question um, somewhat in vain because... Uh, it's a question that Western leaders are uncomfortable asking because it's a question of Crimea above all. At an absolute minimum, uh, Ukraine should regain absolute sovereign control and security in the borders of the 23rd February. That's, an, in my view, is an absolute minimum. Otherwise, it can be construed by Vladimir Putin as a victory and sold that way to the Russian people. Everybody I talk to in Ukraine, literally everybody, wants to go for Crimea. And there are very strong arguments for this. Moral arguments. I talked to a wounded soldier in Lviv who said, too many people have died for us not to get back Crimea. I subsequently heard he himself had been killed at the front. Legal arguments. It's a crass violation of international law. Uh, political arguments. The opinion polling shows that any Ukrainian politician who explicitly gives up Crimea is toast, probably even Volodymyr Zelensky. Um, and cultural arguments. We want Ukraine to remain a multicultural country. What about the Crimean Tatars? There is something called the Crimean Autonomous Platform, which I visited, headed by a Crimean Tatar, which is right in the center of the government quarter because President Zelensky wanted, wanted it there. So there are all these Long-term arguments, but on top of that, this is the interesting thing. There are two strategic arguments. One, long-term, we cannot really be secure if just across the pond at the Sea of Azov, there's this, uh, you know, Russian missile launchers sitting in Crimea. I mean, I say to British friends, imagine a hostile power with missile launchers in the Isle of Wight, Bornholm or whatever example you want to take. But as important, and this was to some extent new to me, the short-term strategic argument was this. Crimea is the one thing that Russia really cares about. Ordinary Russians really care about. Uh, if you can put pressure on Crimea through getting to the line of Crimea and hitting the Kerch Bridge, that might actually force Russia to negotiate. And so that seems to me where we want to go in the war. And if there is then a very painful compromise to be made, and it can only be made by Ukraine in the war, in which for some period, not de jure, but de facto, Russia keeps control of Crimea. But in return, they get hard security guarantees from a number of NATO member states, including the US, Britain and Poland. That's a deal quite a few Ukrainians said to me they would take. So I think this question of what we're prepared to offer 
notably hard security guarantees, because NATO membership before Viktor Orban and Recep Tayyip Erdogan agree to that, that'll take some time. I think that's now front and center of the debate. Uh, all the security questions, security guarantees that NATO countries could offer is essentially presence of the troops in the territory of Ukraine. So it's an incredibly difficult thing. Is even Poland prepared actually to put boots yeah, on the exactly. ground? So at the moment, the thinking is, we're going to give you all the kit including F-16s and all the air defense systems, so that you have the equipment to defend yourself at whatever the line is. Um, and of course, that's a, that's a sliding slope, because if you have sophisticated equipment, you have trainers, you probably have special forces and so on. But I absolutely agree with you that this is where, so to speak, the rubber hits a road. What, what is going to be a credible hard security guarantee? And are even the most, you know, forward-footed NATO member states, Britain, which has been really one of the most out there, and Poland and Estonia, are we really prepared to take that step? That would be also the question of credibility. We once already made those guarantees in the 90s. Well, if you look at the Budapest Memorandum, what Russia, the US and UK gave were so-called security assurances that they weren't going to right. <laughs> question the territorial integrity of Ukraine. So actually, it, even even in it, it wasn't worth the paper it was written on. That's clearly mm -hmm. true. But even in form, it wasn't a proper security guarantee. Mm -hmm. Just coming back for a second, when it comes to this very difficult and painful compromise that might be on the table at some point, as we will learn eventually, it brings us back to the very controversial argument made by Kissinger that you need to keep Russia as part of the global order and you need to somehow negotiate with them. You cannot allow yourself to have a rock state with one of the biggest nuclear arsenals. And how do you take this? Of course we must take, I mean, we're, we're speaking on the day when Putin has just uh, announced that he's going to abrogate the nuclear arms control treaty with the United States. So of course we must take that seriously. But that's not how I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about how you get to Ukrainian victory. And I think it's I think short to medium term. I'm not thinking about saving Russia's amor prop let alone saving Putin's amor prop. Look, it's been fascinating working on this book, which concentrates on the last 50 years. You know, Kierkegaard said, history is lived, life is lived forward, but understood backwards. I only now realize that the last 50 years have actually been about the decline of the Russian empire, right? Imperial decline takes a long time. It's a very painful process. The empire tries to strike back. I think we'll be dealing with the decline of the Russian empire probably for decades to come if you think how long it took for the Ottoman Empire or the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And we have only very limited possibilities directly to influence what happens in Russia. What we can do is to shape the external environment, geopolitical, cultural and economic, in which with time, Russia finally understands and accepts, like other post-colonial powers, that it's lost an empire and must find a role. Well, that's actually the underpinning assumption of our scenario-based report, War in the Future of Europe, assuming that with the decline of Russian power in, in the world, they assume more assertive and aggressive posture vis-a-vis -vis neighbors, the West, which we observe, 
But I think uh, you also pointed out to what Ukraine needs to do, looking back at Kissinger again, well, it needs to follow Finland's success in defying, de- defining its borders by military response to Russia, and then it will gain respect and even partnership relations to the future political entity that governs Russia. Uh, so, number one, Finland at the end of the, uh, for, uh, for the Winter War gave up 10% of its territory. I don't want Ukraine to give up 10% of its territory. Number two, Finlandization then meant um, neutrality and limits on your foreign policy. I don't want that for Ukraine either. Nor does the Finnish foreign minister, Sanna Marin, who, who, who was explaining why she, she, they wanted Finland to join NATO, and she said it's a line that Russia can't cross. So I want Ukraine also to face the, the line that Russia can't cross. Um, so I'm thinking, how do we get there? The medium to long term goal is the combination of EU and NATO membership. But how we get there is a very challenging question. I agree. We are not playing history, we're playing future. And future is with the decision about Finland joining NATO. And I think Ukraine is on, on that path. But but still, I think it's valid argument to say that defending the borders, which you raised already, is the key, is the key to the to the peace. Uh, because without getting sovereignty in, in Ukraine, Russia will always be able to wage war inside and say it's just special operations. Absolutely. So we talk about neutrality, but there's neutrality and neutrality. There's Austrian-style neutrality and there's Finnish-style neutrality. Finnish-style neutrality was to make yourself a hedgehog, to make yourself you know, have really strong defense. So it's obvious that Ukraine needs that. But actually, when you're up against Russia, I mean, a senior NATO, American NATO general was saying to me, you know, in our war planning, we use virtually the whole of our army against Russia, right? So however powerful, even if they have 700,000 men and women under arms in Ukraine, they still need support from, from, from the West. But there has to be, there has to be a, a path towards that. You can't just go straight to NATO membership. Part of this path entails the collapse of the Russian imperialism. As you said, we are witnessing... Uh, a broader developments here, almost like a Hegelian process. And in your new book, Homelands, you argue that actually 1989 was a history not with a capital H, but with a small H as a sequence of unforeseen developments. So do you believe that nowadays we're facing a Hegelian capital history or is it once again a small H history? Without question, there is only small H history. Um, big H history is philosophy of history. It's German philosophy. Um, and there, there are many examples of contingency in the way we got here. I mean, starting with 2014 and the weakness of the Western reaction. 2014 was a, the turning point at which the West failed to turn. But all the way up to the disastrous American withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, I mean, future historians will weigh the question whether Putin would have taken this risk uh, if he hadn't thought that the Biden administration was very weak looking at Afghanistan. And equally, 10 days ago, I was at Rostomel, the airport just outside Kiev. If the Russian troops had actually got Rostomel, they might have taken Kiev, they might have taken Zelensky, and it would have been a very different history. So, so history depends on fortuna, it depends on contingency, and it depends on human will. So we're all waiting to read the book, which is coming up next week. 
And uh, we're uh, most excited about the results of the survey that is being released, actually, as we speak, to discuss uh, how Europe is changing and what's the future for Europe that is propelled by this war and more, more of uh, other dynamics. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for speaking with our uh, audience at the, the Segerad Insight podcast. Great pleasure. Keep up the great work. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.